I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo, and we have we have just Eddie. It's Teddy Sauer. Needed to France. Eric Marie. It's Mahi Drysdale. It is Sir Matthew Vincent. Thank you for being here. I'm Alex Del Sordo, the Rover's Choice, and uh, continuing the theme. This is epi- uh, season five, episode two, and I got a modern day Renaissance man. This guy, if you look him up. Um, and, and, and a lot of non-rowers know him, which I'm, I can't wait to talk about, uh, cause like rowing sucks sometimes. And, uh, what this guy has done, he's found a way to get out of the boat and into the business world. Um, where do I go? A designer, an architect, an author, an entrepreneur, a rower, a coxswain. Uh, this guy has done it all. And he's like 36, 37 years old. Uh, you will see his name. You'll know who he is. Every single rower on the face of the earth knows knows this guy. Uh, it's Jack Carlson, and today we're going to be talking about his history of rowing, like how, where he got started, how he found the boat. We're going to be talking about the rivalry that is George Washington and Georgetown, because we did compete against each other, and I hated him uh, in the <laughs> early part of the two thousands. Uh, but we're going to be talking about that, and then the transition that he took out of college and into the rowing business, a uh, business that is so cool. It ties rowing and the history of rowing to fashion and like the real world. But before we get started, I have the same question. Jack, thanks for being here, man. Wow. That was quite the intro. Thanks for having me. Um, One thing I will say, among all those uh, various lies you told about me, um, I'm (laughs) definitely not an architect. Uh, Archaeologist, archaeologist. Traveled in some archaeology. No, no, no. I just, uh, before people start hitting me up to design their homes. Well, I mean, I might ask you to come design the interior of my home. I mean, you got, you got a good look, man. You got, I, I, I follow, uh, rowing blazers and, and, um, I've read the book, read it. I mean, I looked through the at least twice. Um, and I, before I get to my first question, I just want to give you a pat on the back, man, walking into target and seeing rowing blazers was one of the coolest things I have I have been a part of in rowing. I felt like rowing was mainstream. And I have three kids and my kids were wondering like, what is that? What is this? And uh, look, shameless plug for you. I, I bought a rowing blazer for my son. Like I had to do it. And it was just so cool, man. So congratulations on that. That's awesome. It was one of the coolest things in my life as well. Um, I worked on that for about two years. Couldn't tell anybody a million NDAs. So uh, it was just kind of something top secret and to see it come to life and to be in whatever it was, almost 2000 target stores all across the U S and so many of my friends did the same thing. Like all my friends with kids, they got the little rowing blazers for their kids. And um, it was a really, really cool thing to be a part of. Well, I can't wait to get to to that part of the story, but let's go, let's go at the beginning of the story that I want to tell that we want to tell and that is how old were you and where were you when you took that first rowing stroke? I was 11 or 12 and uh, it was on the Charles River. Uh, it was at BB&N um, school in uh, Cambridge, Mass, where I went to middle school and high school. One of the oldest uh, high school rowing programs in the country a big rivalry with Belmont Hill, the first American high school to win Henley in England, uh, a very long tradition. And before going to that school, I had grown up playing Little League Baseball. 
and I was really into it. Little League Baseball, I was the the worst guy on the best team, which was a great experience. That's like in rowing. You also you always want to be the slowest guy in the boat. You want to be the last man in. You know, that's the most fun. Um, uh, not that you don't want to be your best, but you want to be. Yeah, we get it. Yeah, with people who are even better. Um, and I thought I was going to play baseball when I went to this new school. And baseball was not really that much of a thing. And all my friends were doing rowing. And even when I went to the interview, the teacher who interviewed me said, so you're going to do crew, right? I had never even heard of it at the time. Oh, I thought this was some kind of like joke, you know, that they, some little test for the new kids that they're interviewing. I said, what's crew? She said, you know, it's like a long, thin boat. There's eight guys rowing. There's one guy like yelling. I thought this was like a riddle or something. And um, it was real. And I got there. I did baseball for a, a short period of time. But I found all my friends were uh, were doing rowing. And they needed a coxswain. They said, you'd be a great coxswain. At the time, they made it sound like a compliment, you know. Um, and that's... That's how I got started. But I did, I both rode and coxed when I was, uh, when I was first starting, spent a lot of time in the single BBNN at that time anyway, had a lot of beautiful old wooden singles that I totally took for granted. I was just like, this is what a boat is. Um, but they're probably like, you know, priceless, you know, Pinert and Pocock. Oh, they're artifacts. Antique boats. Yeah. They're beautiful. Um, and that's how I got started. Did your did your parents know anything about rowing uh, at all? Was there any family history? Nothing, nothing. My oh. parents are both from Michigan. Um, my mom is from Detroit. Uh, and go Lions! <laughs> go Lions! My dad, my dad is from Warren, just outside of Detroit. Um, he grew up. He literally working in the auto factories. Um, my grandfather worked in the auto factories, both my dad and uh, my grandfather for GM. They knew about the, the Red Wings. They knew about the Lions. They didn't know about rowing at all. Um, when I got started, you know, they, they did mention they sort of vaguely knew of Detroit Boat Club was where, you know, a few fancy people in Detroit would go rowing when they were when they were kids but they really knew nothing about it um so it was a whole new thing but it ended up becoming a big family thing and my sister uh became a coxswain as well she's three years younger than me she started at cri a few years later she went on to cox at radcliffe um won the ivy league championship when she was at radcliffe um was at the u.s training center for a little while and uh, my parents have been super supportive all the way along. So it, it did kind of become a, a little bit of a family thing. When did she, what year did she graduate from Radcliffe? 2012. Oh, oh, wow. So I know I was at Henley in 2012 when she raced at Henley. Right? Oh yeah. Radcliffe eight. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, wow. I, I don't know. I can't tell this story on 
a podcast. Uh oh. There was someone from that boat that I had a wonderful time with uh, over a course of six months. And um, I celebrated with your sister and that team after they lost the semifinals, was it? They lost in the semifinals, right, to some European squad. Um, it was one of the most exciting races. I, I'm assuming you were there. You were probably I was there, yeah. I want to say – I forget who they lost to, so I don't want to make it up. But, but it was – I think it was like some national team or under 23 yes. team or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, that was a smoke and fast crew. Uh, that, that, that team was so good. Um, all right, well, let's get, let's get into you. So BBNN, you love it so much that you continue to Georgetown. Uh, so you're in Georgetown, what, 2006 to 2010. Does that sound right? Uh, to you? Tw 25. I'm oh, sorry. Oh, five to oh nine. Oh, five to oh nine. Yeah. So uh, my, my, one of my best friends is uh, Chris Sindoni, and uh, he was on the squad yes. at that time. Uh, he didn't make it though. He 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 just Tony Johnson and him did not see eye to eye. I could just that tell you that right is now. Uh, for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> That's for sure. So I got a I got a bone to pick with you. It's it's not really a bone, but every single time I told people that I go to GW. They would say, oh, Georgetown, that's incredible. I'm like, no, 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 no. The, the, the school in the bottom of the hill. And they're like, oh, geez, okay, okay. What's GW again? And I'm like, it's George Washington, God damn it. Uh, you guys were like the big brother we just never could beat in that, in that era. And when you were training there, you were basically training on your own. Tony Johnson was not really involved with the team as much. And uh, you had some incredible athletes that you were a part of what drew you to Georgetown what what kept you there fighting those uh those four years <laughs> yeah man wow there's a lot to unpack there um first of all I have a hard time believing people are like oh what's that because GW is a great school and also a great rowing program and it's amazing to see um what they've done since the administration cut their varsity status. Oh, right? Incredible. Yes. I, I completely agree with you. And this is, this is 2004, 2005 when people were like, what's, what's GW. We had Greg Meyer who was there with you. Greg Meyer recruited me to Georgetown. Um, there you go. Uh, it was a big part of why I went. I mean, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Like, you know, at BBNN, I had a little bit of exposure to some of, I don't know, the, bigger picture of rowing outside of just like racing fours on the powerhouse stretch on the Charles river. Um, you know, we went to Henley my junior year and, um, you know, of course I got to race in the head of the Charles a bunch. There was one year when we did pretty well at the head of the Charles. That was, that was really fun, really cool. Um, this was when colleges and like high co uh, college freshmen and high schools were still racing together. Oh, yeah. So like, you know, beating some colleges and stuff. It was, you know, that was cool. Um, and that, I don't know, that kind of like fun stuff is what made me want to continue in college. And um, it's funny, like I, I was recruited and I got into a, so many different, you know, all kinds of different places. Um, uh, Princeton, Cornell, um, Williams. I don't know if you remember this, but at that time, USC recruited, I think it was like the entire like Estonian or Lithuanian yes. Yes. national team or something like that, but, but not the coxswain. 
And um, Gene Kinnanmonth, who was the USC coach, for everyone listening to this now, people are going to be like USC men's around. Like this is this was like a totally totally weird moment in uh, the history of collegiate rowing. But um, they didn't have the coxswain, and so Gene Kinnanmonth was like, "Yeah, you're going to be the coxswain of like it's basically the intact like I forget what it was. Do you remember? It was like the Lithuanian." Yeah, uh, listen. Uh, what? Um, oh my God! It was uh, like they're going to come to my under twenty three eight that like meddled it under twenty three yes. or something like that. They beat either Cal or Washington, and then they got banned from participating in future races because they weren't actually degree students. Um, so you were destined to cox this boat. You were destined. That should be a podcast episode in and of itself. Um, <laughs> But anyway, but in the end, and at that time, like Princeton were, were was very good heavy men. I was recruited by the lightweights at Cornell. Um, that was a fast squad. That and it was a coach. They're multi-time yes. national champions, and and but in the end, like I don't know. I just I really liked Georgetown as a school. Um, I liked the guys that I met there. Um, when I was doing my visits and stuff, Nick Barry uh, yes. was my host on my, on, on my visit. And uh, I don't know. I just got a great vibe and Greg Meyer was a great, you know, great. How much do you love Greg Meyer? And, coach. Jesus, I a have a and so, so I, I had to call up Curtis Jordan and Todd Kennett and Gene Kinnamonth and all these guys and be like, Hey, yeah, I'm really sorry. I'm going to Georgetown. Um, but I'll see you on the water. And um it was it was a lot of fun being at Georgetown. I mean, um, I it's definitely true what you're saying. We were pretty much on our own. Tony did not do a lot of coaching. He was not very um, he was not very hands on. It was sometimes very frustrating. It was sometimes very rewarding. Um, you know, we had I think we had a couple of seasons that were. Um, you know, we sort of exceeded expectations and we had probably a couple of seasons that were quite frustrating when I was there. Um, yeah. the most fun was my sophomore year. I was in the 2V and um, we did very well. It was the first time Georgetown had made the grand finals of the Eastern Sprints um, in a, you know, in a, in a 2V or 1V and won a lot of races and it was, it was a lot of fun, but it also, I mean, I learned a lot from the guys because we did have some great athletes, some great rowers. Um, and it was in some ways kind of, uh, the leadership had to come from within a little bit because there wasn't a lot of, a lot of really hands-on. Who was the assistant? Who was the older guy assisting Frank, Tony? Frank Benson. Yeah. There, thank and, you. and you're talking about Chris Sindoni. I mean, Frank, and Chris probably got along even worse than Tony and Chris. I never got along with Frank all that well myself. Frank is, is sadly no longer with us, RIP. Yeah. Um, and I know he had a great, you know, he had a great coaching career, coached some really fast crews. I mean, uh, so I, I, you know, who am I to say anything? But uh, it was... Um, it was an interesting experience. Yeah, I can mean, still, I can still hear Chris complaining about the doubles and the singles he had a row with Frank and Frank just screaming at him in the launch, 
and he and it it made him quit rowing. And Chris is uh, was with me at Mainland, naturally one of the most naturally gifted athletes I had ever come across. You know, six foot five, two hundred twenty pounds, can move like the wind. Um, he, he basketball at heart. But all right, so you you have your fun at Georgetown, and you decide to go to the national team. So you have a handful of years in the national team. Well, How actually, first that? first I decided to go to Oxford. Um, that's right. That's right. I, you know, I think part of it too, and I always think back on this, like, I think, I don't know if I had gone to Princeton and, you know, whatever, like we won this or got a medal in that or whatever, like maybe I would have been like, okay, actually I'm good. And I kind of, you know, can be done with rowing now or whatever. Um, but I definitely felt like I had some kind of unfinished, business a little bit and um I knew also I wanted to go to grad school I got really into archaeology even though at Georgetown I was in a foreign service school and I was doing Chinese and I was doing international politics and economics and all this stuff but I also did a classics I did I basically did like a double major and I did classics as well and um I got really into archaeology and I knew I wanted to go to grad school for that and um I actually, I only applied to grad school in two places. I only applied to Oxford and Cambridge. And because I knew I wanted to keep coxing as well. And if you go to, you know, somewhere in the U.S., there's NCAA, you know, four for five or whatever, all these rules. And, you know, I wouldn't have been able to continue. And I knew I wanted to do that. I also had a very good friend who is another BBNN alum. I don't know if you know him, Joe Gorey. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joe went to Cambridge. I don't think he ever ended up either in the Blue Boat or Goldie. He coxed him, I think, to head of the Charles win. But he was just always extolling the virtues of going to Cambridge or Oxford for grad school. And this was like from when I was in high school. This was before I went to Georgetown that I was getting to hear about this. So that had been something on my mind for a long time. And uh, yeah, I went to Oxford uh straight out of georgetown and and really a big part of that was wanting to cox well you know this is not the, the interview is not necessarily entirely about rowing so I, I i as much as i want to talk about that experience um i, I do want to get into the business world that you're in um so you had your stint with the national team thereafter very successful i think you got a bronze in 13 right 2012 or 13 15 15 um you know, you have, you have, I believe in business. I think it's essential that you surround yourself with people. And you even said it earlier, you want to be the worst guy in the boat, right? You want to surround yourself with better people and people that you look up to. And that leads you to do things you never thought you could. So there it is. Like you're, you're on the, you're on the national team. And I'm assuming every single person around you was a high achiever, strong willed, you know, goal oriented person. At, at, but I want to talk about the business. So your first business would be the book. Is that correct? Like getting into that? Yeah. I mean, in some ways that was kind of a business in and of itself. And and that's how it started. I mean, I started working on the book as a side project while I was at Oxford and um, it became a significant part of my life. And I worked on it for years. It was like when I would have a week here or two weeks there in between rowing commitments and school commitments, I would 
try go to the Netherlands for like a week, or I'd go to Australia, or I'd go drive down the, you know, East coast of the U S or I'd fly out to Wisconsin for two days or whatever it might be um, to go shoot and interview basically for the book. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to make a book, get it published, any of that. But that, that definitely was my first kind of, uh, yeah, venture. And it was the beginning of what became obviously the Rowing Blazers brand. So the, the book, I mean, were you very vocal about this as you were building it? Um, you know, you, we said earlier with the target deal that we're going to get into, you said you had to keep it quiet. Now, I don't know your personality, you know, well enough, but were you very vocal about your goals or was this just a small side hustle that really not a lot of people knew about? Um, my friends knew about it, but I wasn't like, uh, I wasn't like, I mean, at the time there was no Instagram, there was Facebook, but I wasn't really like posting about it on Facebook that like, Hey, this book's coming and whatever, because I didn't really quite know what it was going to be. And it, it did kind of snowball as I was working on it and, and it became a bigger and bigger thing. Um, but it really wasn't until the book was basically done and I knew that we had a publisher and I knew what the plan was that I really started talking about it. But I think people sort of knew a little bit about it through just kind of a game of telephone because, you know, I was going to like every major rowing club that where they had a blazer tradition, I'll just caveat that because there's some places with a very rich rowing history, like University of Washington, even, which didn't really have a blazer tradition. Now, by the way, just to make a shameless plug, there's a new edition of the book that's about to come out this spring. Yes. That is greatly expanded. I mean, like way expanded. We have like all these rowing clubs that now have a blazer tradition that maybe didn't before, including Washington, including Penn. There are younger clubs like University of Texas, and there are many, many, many more international teams. Nassau Rowing Club from the Bahamas, a bunch from Japan, China, uh, Argentina, all over the place. There's a lot more diversity reflecting the way that the sport has become way more diverse over the past 10 years. And it's been 10 years since the book came out, which is also crazy to think about. So Holy cow. And we've got um, Row New York is in there. We've got, of course, my good friend, Arshay Cooper, who is part of the first all-Black American high school rowing team. Um, he's in the book. It's, it's, uh, it's very exciting. I'm very excited for it to come out. It was a ton of work. And it reminded me how much work it was actually doing the book the first time around. But um, that's coming out this spring. But all of this is by way of saying, because so many people by the nature of the book had to be involved in it, um, and I had to go visit all these rowing clubs and photograph all these people, I think through the grapevine, people sort of heard that this thing was happening. But the first time around, the first edition of the book, I launched it really in partnership with Ralph Lauren. And that was my first introduction into the world of, of the apparel industry, into the world of fashion. Um, and that very directly, I think, led to starting the Rowing Blazers business. But it was so cool because Ralph basically gave me carte blanche. We had two big launch events, really three, actually, one in their London flagship on Bond Street, one in their New York flagship, one in the Boston flagship on Newbury Street. And I really could invite 
I had like unlimited invitations and they made physical engraved invitations. And I pretty much invited the entire rowing communities of Britain and the United States <laughs> uh, to the London and, and New York launches. Like they ran out of champagne within the first 20 minutes or something of like a four hour event. Um, <laughs> But that's what really, I think, put it on everyone's radar, like, whoa. And the fact that uh, such a big brand like Ralph Lauren was kind of even tangentially involved in the sport of rowing that caught people's attention. And uh, how, how do you get how did, how did this come about? So, yeah, I got it. You're, you're traveling, you're, you're kind of bootstrapping. But let's talk about the, the financials as much as you're comfortable talking about. How did you get the funding to do it? And, and, and then how did you get the relationship with Ralph? to launch that. This yeah. is important for young entrepreneurs, right? This is important yeah. for yeah. people with an idea. How do they do it? Well, I'll tell you. So first I wrote to a bunch of book agents, like literary agents. I tried to find ones who specialized in like coffee table books, basically. I just tried to look at other like coffee table books that I liked because I knew from the beginning, that's what I was making. It's a coffee table book. It's a lot, it's a lot of photography. Um, but it's not just going to be pictures. It's whatever. I, I tried to look at books that I admired that were in a similar lane. And uh, I must have emailed like a hundred agents. Not a single one wrote back to me. Not a single one. And uh, I, I went through phases of being like really bummed about this. Like really bummed. I met through a mutual friend. Um, a guy who worked at publisher Rizzoli, which is very famous, very prominent in the coffee table book world. Um, he was like, we're excited about this. We want to do this. Um, let me get you an offer, you know, later this week. And then basically like six months passed and I, I got ghosted <laughs> for large stretches of that sometimes there'd be a little like you know oh like hang on I'll just I'll, I'll get back to you and that was a little bit of like a false start um there's another publisher called powerhouse that I had a convert that I reached out to someone there directly again through kind of a mutual friend that also went nowhere that was almost like okay we love to do this but here's how much money we're going to need from you and it was kind of like, whoa, 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 money for me. I think you're supposed to be paying me money, not the other way around. So that kind of went nowhere. I just bring these little anecdotes up because this is all the stuff that you encounter along the way. I, I mean, I'm talking about publishing a book, but I think with many, many entrepreneurial things, this is a little bit how it goes. Finally, and after really being pretty bummed about this whole thing and the, the odds of it actually ever getting published, um, for a long time, I started emailing other publishers directly, including I emailed a, a relatively small publisher called Von Dome that is distributed by a pretty big name, Abrams, in the in the publishing game. And then I also wrote to Thames and Hudson, which is very big and very well-respected publisher um, in London. And to my absolute amazement, they both wrote back to me within 24 hours, within probably 48 hours of me sending this cold email. And I'm talking, it was like an email to like, hello at thamesandhudson.co.uk. It was like, I didn't know anybody there. I didn't have a friend of a friend. It was 
totally cold. Um, I think within like 48 hours of sending that email, I was sitting in the Thames and Hudson offices in London. And I ended up getting offers from both of them. We ended up doing something where Van Dome was a US publisher, Thames and Hudson was for the rest of the world. Um, and I got an advance that for me at the time was definitely significant. Um, it, after all the travel and everything of like going around and shooting this, I, there was probably nothing left, but it enabled me to like actually make my like creation and make my art, you know, and that was what I wanted. You know, this wasn't like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to become, you know, rich by doing this book about rowers and their blazers. But it was like a very much, it was a passion project. And I, I got this advance from those two publishers that enabled me to, to actually do it. Your passion and your energy for the sport and this idea obviously kept you going when you had the low moments. Um, and when you sat down with these two publishers, was it, I'm getting my timeline correct. You had something to show them, correct? Like you had visuals yeah. and you were really there. I had, I had a lot of the writing and I had, yeah, I had some of the pictures. I had the pictures that, you know, it was like easier for me to do. I was in Oxford at that time. So I had a lot of like the British clubs we had already photographed. And by the way, when we started, like I was photographing everybody myself. I realized after a while, I was like, and again, like the project kind of got more serious as I was doing it. That's why I say it kind of snowballed a little bit. And I ended up getting some pretty well-respected, more like fashion photographers involved. Again, like because they wanted to, because, you know, they thought it was a cool thing to do. And you are kind of giving access to this world that I, I didn't really even appreciate at the time. It's like, it's such a cool thing. If you're an outsider and you're like, yeah, we're going to go to the Harvard boathouse and shoot Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss wearing their Henley blazers. And what it, it's like, if you're not from that world, you're like, whoa, what do you say? I'm going to get yeah. to go where? Yeah, that's a very special and very cool thing. And then, you know, oh, we're actually going to do this same idea, like in the Netherlands and in South Africa and here and there. And it's, um, it's a very cool thing for someone to be a part of. And uh, yeah, it, it, um, it very much relied on rowing being a pretty close knit community, because it, it involved a lot of favors from people or people just giving up their time without any real like compensation. And it was very much a passion project, I think for everyone involved. And at this point, there really is no business plan. There's nothing in writing that says, oh, I'm, I'm doing this next and I'm achieving this next. And it, it was a, no, was, I'm just gonna go. There's not even an idea of that. I think sometimes people see it from the outside and it's like, oh, he had this grand plan and everything just fell into place and whatever. And by the way, when I say I was like really bummed for a while, I mean, I'm talking, I was like depressed for many months when I was like not hearing back from these agents. This one publisher guy was kind of ghosting me. This other guy like wanted me to pay them, which I was, you know, I couldn't do. And um, it was really like, it was really hard it was literally depressing and um yeah I mean I just kind of kept emailing people but also yeah at that time I had no concept or idea of oh yeah I'm going to turn this into a brand one day um 
when was that moment? So when when did that happen? Like when did things really kick up? Well, after the book came out, I started getting a lot of emails from people and from rowing clubs saying, oh, can you make us a blazer for this club or for this team? Or, um, And at that time as well, I think some of the really traditional blazer makers, like the one really notable one is called AE Clothier, and it was in Cambridge, England. Like they kind of, I don't want to say like went out of business, but I think basically the guy, it was like a guy, he got sick and I think he passed away and there was not really like a business in place around him. So the, like all the clubs that they had been serving were just kind of like, I don't know, what are we doing now? Um, and so a lot of people started writing saying, Hey, can you make blazers for us? I was like, Hey, I'm I'm an archaeologist and I, I wrote a book about it. I don't know anything about really like making the blazer, but that wasn't true because I actually did know a lot because I learned a lot through the book and I looked at more rowing blazers than like probably anyone ever before ever had. <laughs> and so after a while I started to think, actually, maybe, maybe there is something here. I had always been interested in clothes. I mean, that's why I did the book. The book kind of brought together many of my interests, the sport of rowing, um, you know, clothes and the history of clothes. It also, you know, brought in kind of like the history of institutions and universities and a lot of the things that I was kind of interested in and these quirky things, they all came together in the book. But um, I think really by partnering with Ralph Lauren, that's what was my entree into that industry. Um, and really sparked the idea of like, maybe there's really something more here. Um, and I kind of sat on that idea for a little while. I didn't like spring into act. I didn't kind of say, oh, we've got all this momentum from the book coming out. Let me launch a brand next month. Um, it was probably, it was, it was like three years from the book coming out to launching a brand. And in that time, most of that time I was coxing. I went back onto the national team. I, I retired from coxing in 2014, right before the book came out. I was in the coxed pair at the 2014 world championships, the lead <laughs> sled and came back to New York and basically did the book launch event at Ralph. And I thought I was done coxing. I finished my PhD that winter and I started teaching and coaching at St. Mark's in uh, South Bro, Mass. So I was like, literally, I was teaching ancient history and coaching rowing at a boarding school. And it was during that time that I was like, you know, I should actually really pursue this kind of dream of starting a brand. And I'm going to work on it this coming summer, like after the school year is done. But it was it was like a side project to start with. It was a passion project. And that summer came and I had a business partner who I'll talk about it at that point, a guy, David Rosenzweig, who is a veteran of the apparel industry. And I couldn't have done anything without without meeting him. I met him through a mutual friend at Ralph Lauren. But when that summer came, this is like summer of 2015. Um, I had to tell David, hey, our plans to start this brand have to be put on hold a little bit because I'm going, I'm coming out of retirement. I'm going back onto the national team. And uh, I had gotten a call from Bruce Smith, who was coaching the lightweight eight 
that summer for the US. He was telling me the guys who were going to be involved. I was, I've told this story on other interviews, but I was 176 pounds when Whoa. Bruce called me. Whoa. You know, I had to get down to really as a coxswain, you have to get down to like about 110 because you don't want to be 121. 55 kilos is like 121. You want to be like 10 pounds under that and drink up, you know, for the weigh-in. So, so you really want to be like about 110 walking the earth. So I had to lose like 65 pounds in about two and a half months. Um, and when you're doing that, it's hard to also be building like a, an apparel brand on the side. That became pretty all-consuming. Um, and I ended up staying on the national team. I went to the, the training center for the 2016 Olympics. Uh, obviously wasn't in the boat, but I was, I was there for that whole season. And, um, so that put the brand thing a little bit on hold. Um, but I was still kind of working on it a little bit on the side, um, with David, my business partner. when I was at, at Chula Vista, he would fly out and we'd meet in, in and out next to the training center and yeah. um like look at samples and stuff when i was in princeton he would drive down from the city i'm glad i went back into the national team though it let me scratch just like another itch which was you know we got a medal at, at the world's i i lost the weight by the way spoiler alert um it was it was all worth it probably messed up my metabolism of my body for the rest of my yeah, life. You're, you're forever screwed on that one. I, I don't, I don't know what that is going to look like in 25 years, but that is a shockingly high number. Uh, it was a lot. I'm doing okay though. And, um, you know, you get, it's, it now forces me to kind of like, you know, work out and, and, and stay in shape and whatever, but it's, um, it was worth it. Uh, and it was a lot of fun, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how it went from book to business or brand there was a lot of rowing and there was a lot of time in between and and during that time the idea of this brand was really more of a side project while i was like full-time first teaching and coaching and then coxing there's uh there's two lessons there that i like to point out one is um patience patience is a really important thing i think in business in life in general um you didn't rush you took your time you probably had the luxury of taking your time, which some people don't, right? Some people feel their backs up against the wall. Um, but the second lesson is the market dictates your company and who you are in some cases. And you built the book, but then so many people were saying, I would love this. I really want this. I want this. And, and that was the brand and the clothing that you now design and you're part of. Um, and this this business partner, is he older than you? Um, yeah, he's... David is like my dad's age. And it's pretty unusual, I would say, that um, you don't often see co-founders of companies that are from like such different generations. I think that's pretty unusual, actually. Um, and it's not like, I mean, David was my dad's age, but he wasn't a family friend growing up or anything like that. I met him for the first time in 2015 when I was like teaching in high school, the book had already come out. Um, and, uh, but we just kind of hit it off and um, he got the vision for the brand. And I told him from the get go, I don't want the brand to be 
so literal. I don't want it to be people hear the name and maybe they think it's going to be like just super preppy or it's going to be vineyard vines or something. And no, I want it to be, I want it to be a little more, um, I don't know. I want to adapt some of the ideas and lessons of, of the world of streetwear into what we're doing. I want to have a focus on inclusivity with what we're doing. I want to do limited edition product though, as well. And a lot of do a lot of collaborations um, with other brands. And he just got that whole idea in a way that no one else did. And, I, and by the way, I talked to like a few dozen people about the, the idea of starting this brand with the idea that maybe I could work with one of them or some of them. And really David is the one who got it better than anyone. And that's, that's why, that's why we hit it off and we're still business partners uh, to this day. So how, how big is this company? Um, and, 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 and what exactly it's rowing blazers is the company, right? And you guys do a lot of things. Uh, which is all tied to the same vision. Um, is it a hundred person company, 10 person company? Like walk me through the mechanics of this business. Yeah, it's like 15 people. So it's not very big. I think a lot of people think it's probably a lot bigger than it is. Um, of course, you know, we don't, we don't like own our own factories or, uh, you know, anything like that. We, we rely on partners that are outside of the company as well. So 15 people, that's really like 15 people, most of whom are in New York. Um, and it is a crazy industry, man. I mean, nothing that I did doing a PhD in archaeology or, you know, uh, or all my rowing stuff could really prepare me for how, how wacky this world is and this industry is and it's a very hard i mean probably like many industries it's very hard for a small business to kind of like make its way in this in this industry it's very much like the deck the deck is very much stacked in favor of really 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 big players and really big um corporations is that a goal of yours is that a goal of yours to be a very big corporation or do you really love the lane that you're in you know i i would love to grow while maintaining the integrity of what the brand is all about i mean i think it's it's very much a creative outlet for me the brand and uh lets me do a lot of things that you know, to be honest, like I didn't really get to do in rowing. I mean, rowing has a lot of virtues, but it's not a very creative um, space, you know, and even even within like what the sport is, you know, there are there are tactics and there are, um, of course, different ways to train and you can be creative about you know, getting those, those marginal gains and getting the edge on the competition, but it's not like a, a sport like basketball or football or whatever, where, you know, strategy and really unusual types of plays or whatever can, can come into the picture. Um, so it gives me a big creative outlet. And, uh, you know, I think that that's, yeah, that's very important to me. That's very, very important to me. And and being able to, I don't know, kind of express myself through the brand. And 
um, I, I see this in response to your question about wanting to be big or small or whatever. I think when you're doing something creative, yeah, you want people to see, you want as many eyeballs on it. Of course. Uh, you know, as you, as you can, you want to be putting your creative energy out there into the universe and you don't want to put it into a vacuum. You know, you want to, you want people to see it. That's why the target collaboration was so cool because so many people got to see it and got to buy it and got to participate in it. And it's so much fun for me seeing people's like tagged photos on Instagram and they're from all over the world and from all walks of life and all ages and seeing them wearing something that like I designed and I created. And that's a lot of fun. So let's, let's, uh, well, I want to point something out before we get into the target thing. And that is, uh, the highs and lows of being an entrepreneur and the business owner, um, the, the, the months of depression when no one was saying yes to you or saying, Hey, I want to help you. And, and I love the fact that someone said, give me money and I will absolutely write, you know, publish your book. It's like, Jesus, do you enjoy being a business owner? Cause you went into school, the exact opposite of being a business owner, right? Do you enjoy it? Do you enjoy being an entrepreneur? There are times when I love it. There are times when I hate it, you know, and I think to me, um, the biggest thing that I really love is the creative side of things. I love that much more than the ups and downs of, you know, of like, of running a business. Yeah. Um, just to be totally honest, you know, um, I think it's very rewarding though, from both a creative perspective and from a business perspective, when, you know, when you succeed and when you can look at those, um, wins and those great moments. And I mean, target is, is an example we're talking about a lot, but there have been so many all along the way. And, um, so many amazing moments. And I'd say every day, every week, every month is like a total emotional roller coaster because even just within a given day, there are like, and it's still the case. It was the case like three months after we started. It's still the case now. Every single day, you're like blindsided by like, oh my God, like Justin Bieber's wearing one of our shirts and like, it's absolutely blowing up. And people I haven't talked to since middle school are like texting me being like, Hey, I saw Justin Bieber's wearing this shirt. Um, you know, and then within that same day, there'll be some like absolutely unmitigated disaster fire that has to be put out that you're also completely blindsided by yeah. that. It's just like, Oh, you know, like all the corduroy suits that we're supposed to be making for this really important thing. Um, yeah, there's now like a, I, I mean, I'm making this up, but it's like, yeah, there's actually like a 45% tax on Italian quarter right now. So like, we're going to lose money on every single one. And it's like, wait, what? Yeah. They just changed this import tariff. And it's like some, if there's stuff like that every single day where you're like, what are you even saying to me right now? Like this cannot be, but every single day you have those high highs, you have those low lows and it's, um, I've just gotten like used to it by now. I think I've just almost like, that's just what my days are like. There, a, uh, a very well-known man in the rowing world. Uh, he builds boats. He said to me one time, start your day knowing you're going to get punched in the face. If you start that day every day, you're not going to be surprised. You're going to get punched in the face. Oh, totally. 
that really like you know, another way of saying is that you're going to get screwed over at some point. And having been a business owner now going on 11 years, I've had other failures in other businesses that that range true to me so much. And I'm never surprised anymore. And someone said, well, aren't you dead inside? I'm like, well, you could see it that way. Sure. Like I look like I'm dead inside. Thank you. I, you're, that's basically saying you look <laughs> old and ugly, but it's just, I now know what to expect. Um, but let's, let's end with a high note. Cause this target thing is such a big deal, dude. Like it's such a big deal. Now, now that you're past it, you can tell me as much as you can about that story of how you got to that point. Because for every rower out there that dreams the sport to be bigger, we saw it as a collective as that's getting bigger. Now we have this great movie and that's everyone's enjoying it. But this was a blend of like real world, everyday target goers and rowing. So tell, tell us the story. What can you tell me? Yeah, I mean, just to... By way of background, we have always done a lot of collaborations. It's always been part of the DNA of the brand. It's something that I believed in from very early on. And it's led us to do some really cool things from streetwear brands like Eric Emanuel and Noah to really traditional brands like Sperry and J Press and Barber and Fila and all kinds of things. Um, watches became a really big thing for us. Seiko, Tag Heuer. Tudor, Zodiac. Um, but yeah, Target is by far the biggest thing and reached the most people. By the way, we had done earlier, this was last year, but earlier in the year, we did a Gucci collaboration, which everyone was like, whoa, this is so big. It was nothing compared to Target. You know, it was like, it was, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was like a blip. Target was, was, huge and just reached so many people. It started two years ago um, from just a cold email from someone at Target um, who I'd never met, never heard of, no intro from anyone, but just, hey, I work on the collaboration team at Target. Um, we love rowing blazers. We'd be interested in having a conversation, you know, really just kind of an exploratory thing. And we got on the call. They explained that they talked to hundreds if not thousands of brands they're just constantly talking to people and it was very nice but it was also kind of like really don't get excited because we talk to tons of people and sometimes we circle back with someone we talked to five years earlier and wow. say hey you know you know we had talked before we kind of liked what you were doing and let's talk again and let's do a collaboration so they've very much um they set the framework as like, this, this is probably not going to lead to any, this is almost definitely not going to lead to anything anytime soon at all. So we just went in like really kind of no pressure and just had a pleasant conversation. And about a week later or two weeks later, they said, okay, we've talked internally and we'd like to do a major collaboration with Rowing Blazers launching basically I guess it was two years from now. So this conversation was in 2021. Yep. Yep. And um, I just couldn't believe it. They, they sent us over a contract. They, you know, there was for our business, especially at that time, a, you know, very significant uh, like design fee that they were going to pay for, you know, for basically David and me to design this collection. 
one of the things I love about it is we didn't have to deal with a lot of the mayhem and the nonsense of this industry. Like Target was going to make it. Target was going to distribute it. Target was going to deal with the logistics of shipping it to all these places all over the country. I got to really focus on the creative, the photo shoot, the campaign, the design. Um, creative side. Creative side. That's what you got to excel with. It was in. just so much fun. And the te- their team was incredible. The quality of, of the pieces. I mean, if you've seen it in person, the quality was, you know, off the charts and first for, a, you know, a very good price as well for like target pricing. Yes. Um, so it was really just like a dream. It was a dream come true. And it's, it's put our brand on the radar of so many more people. It's led to us being basically sold out on our whole website um, until, you know, we launched kind of the new spring summer collection um, coming up pretty soon. Um, but it was just an amazing experience, the culmination of, you know, many years of work and, and propels us, I think, into kind of a new chapter for the, for the brand and the business. Yeah, that's such a great, that's a great story. And uh, there's a lot of excitement there. And, and in the back of my mind as an entrepreneur, you also know, you're going to wait for the low to come. So there's, there, there, you're, you're on a, you're on a rocket ship right now, but you know, there's going to be stops. There's going to be stalls. There's going to be problems. Out of doubt. <laughs> and you'll exactly, you, you're, you're smiling. Like, you, you know, it's going to happen. Um, Jack, I, you know, last question for you and, and CJ wanted me to ask you this is out of all the collaborations that you guys have done, what has what has been the biggest surprise or or the one that you didn't expect to be big that turned out to be big aside from target what was the, the most i think the biggest thing is um well it, it would be our first collaboration with seiko watches um the watch world probably like the rowing world like many other communities out there it can be very judgmental it can be very hard for someone from the outside to kind of like feel comfortable making their way in and um it was our first watch collaboration i don't really consider myself to be i mean now probably different but at that time to be like properly in the watch world and i was really worried about what the response was going to be and it also was for us at that time a huge amount of watches i think it was like three three styles, limited edition of 500 watches each. And each watch was, I think, 500 or $600. Now, wow. for us today, that's not crazy at all. But at that time, it's like, what, three three years ago, um, that was really daunting. And I was like thinking to myself, if nothing else, I guess I'll just have a lot of watches that I can like give as gifts <laughs> to f- my friends and family and stuff. And... Um, I was really worried too about just what the sort of editorial response from the watch world was going to be. And we were also told by Seiko, so much of the watch press is pay to play. Don't expect to really get a lot of press coverage on this. And then it came out the day that it came out, it was on the front page of Hodinkee, which is probably the premier watch blog in the world. Um, And the caption was a rowing pun. It said, Seiko and rowing blazers, a stroke of genius. And it was like uh, so many comments. They were all positive, which you never see. It's like so many other things on the internet. 
you never see a positive comment section. This was like all positive. And the watches, by the time I was checking the site, the watches were sold out like oh. within, within like 10 minutes. Wow. That was the biggest surprise by far. It's led to us doing now multiple seasons with Seiko. It's led to us doing, we did a Tudor, which Tudor is part of Rolex um, collaboration. We've done a Tag Heuer collaboration where that watch was about $10,000 per watch um you know collaborations with zodiac so much other cool stuff in the watch world that came out of that and um it was a big it was a big risk in some ways it was outside of our comfort zone for sure and i was so scared right up until like the second that it launched wow uh, you're it, it, it's uh i didn't know your story until today and uh, Jack, I, like I said at the beginning of the interview, um, you're 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 a you're a today you're you're a Renaissance man of today, and uh, I'm real stoked to see what your brand can do more for our sport. And um, I I'm 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 genuinely thr thrilled for you. Like this is awesome, and I well, hope I that you stay. In touch with the I don't know I mean. about that. I'm I'm just a guy that they thought would be a good coxswain. And again, like at the time when they told me that, they made it sound like that was, you know, a compliment. And um, I've just kind of followed my passions and things that excite me along the way. And it's been a lot of patience. It's been a lot of hard work. Like none, none of this stuff, I think that's one of the biggest things. It's just like the patience and the grind. And it's like, I wasn't on a super successful team in high school or in college or at Oxford, I was in ISIS and we lost. And um, my first year at Oxford, I ended up switching to Oxford Brooks. And finally, at the age of like 20, whatever, 25, started having a lot of success in the sport that I had started when I was 11. And, um, you know, the book took, people think the book just appeared one day. I mean, the book was four years of work and and years of getting like no response from these publishers and the business has, you know, the business has gone through all kinds of ups and downs to, you know, to get to where it is. And like you said, there's going to be a lot more ups and downs coming. That's just the nature of it. So many uh, more. So if, if people want to learn more about the story and learn more about your brand, where do they go? How do people find find you? rowingblazers.com, rowingblazers on Instagram. You can find me, Jack Carlson, on Instagram. That's yeah. it. Now, Jack, are you, I, I'm heading to the Power 10 dinner in two weeks. Are you going to be there? I'm going to try to be there. Liz O'Leary is the honoree who oh, was yeah. um, my sister's coach at, sister's at coach. Radcliffe. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, well, uh, I, hope, uh, I hope I get to see you there, man. Um, and thank you for taking the time here today. And uh, Listen, if you are in Target, this is anyone listening. If you are in Target and you see a Rowing Blazers uh, opportunity, go buy it. Go I support think it's the all brand. sold out, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, shucks. Uh, anyway, uh, Jack, thanks for doing this, man. And uh, I look forward to talking to you uh, in a couple of weeks. Thanks a ton. Thanks for having me. All right, see you, man.